Praise the Lord for His love and for our justification in Christ. I invite you to turn this evening to Luke chapter 12, the Gospel of Luke chapter 12, and to the latter verses of the chapter. point in choosing that portion, that hymn, that paraphrase, is that we would have put into our hearts the, the triumph of those in union with Christ, and that nothing can divide them or separate them from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it is this, this that we need to keep in focus as uppermost in our hearts when other things endeavor to be preeminent in our thinking, take the affections of our hearts, uh, they can sometimes try to militate against this preeminent truth and desire that we have. We have Christ. If we have Christ, then what does it matter what we don't have? And so the apostle in Romans 8, he even draws from Psalm 44, where it speaks of God having led them as lambs, as sheep to the slaughter. And, and, and Paul takes that portion in that psalm, and he, he says, even in such cases, we have this triumph through Christ. And so let us never forget what we have in Him. And in this passage from verse 49 through to the end of the chapter will, what is what we'll consider tonight with the Lord's help. You'll see part of it deals with the division that Christ brings. In fact, and that's how we're trying to unify these verses together, the dividing Christ. And so we'll read from verse 49, of chapter 12, verse 49. And this is a lengthy section of Christ's ministry before the disciples and in the midst of a vast, vast crowd. And it carries on into chapter 13 as well. But let us read these final verses of this chapter. Luke 12, verse 49. Jesus says, I am come to send fire on the earth, and what will I if it be already kindled? But I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how am I straightened or pained? Till it be accomplished. Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on, the, on earth? I tell you, nay, but rather the vision. For from henceforth there shall be five in one house divided, three against two, and two against three. The father shall be divided against the son, and the son against the father." The mother against the daughter, and the daughter against the mother. The mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And he said also to the people, When ye see a cloud rise out of the west, straightway ye say, There cometh a shower. And so it is. And when ye see the south wind blow, ye say, There will be heat. And it cometh to pass, ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that ye do not discern this time? Yea, and why even of yourselves judge ye not what is right? When thou goest with thine adversary to the magistrate, as thou art in the way, give diligence, thou mayest be delivered from him lest he heal thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and the officer cast thee into prison. I tell thee, thou shalt not depart thence till thou hast paid the very last might. Amen. As always, may we, with a sense of privilege, receive the word that has been read and may it be written on our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we bless Thee that nothing can separate us that are in Christ. We can't be separated from Thy love. 
We can't be separated from Thy mercy. Though men may bring their accusations, who is he that condemneth? It is God that justifieth. We bless Thee for such concrete assurance as we have from Thy Word. And it's all because of Christ. And we're glad, we're glad that our security is not dependent on our holding on to Thee, but Thy grip upon us. God, grant that we will value that, that which we have in Christ above everything and everyone. Bless this Word. Come to us with power and clarity and extend Thy kingdom through the preaching. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it is prophesied that Messiah will be the Prince of Peace. And when He comes and He arrives on the scene, He tells His disciples and assures them in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. We are also assured of the peace that Christ brings and the promise of peace that is experienced for those that believe in Christ, how they are brought to peace with God. Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are also encouraged to cultivate and maintain and and recognize the already existing peace that there is between those that may have different cultural backgrounds or differences when, and Paul says to Jews and Gentiles at Ephesus in Ephesians 2.14, for he, that is Christ, is our peace, who hath made both one. But none of this is a promise that the world will be at peace with the believer. The fact is that there will be division, and Christ brings division into the world. We read in verse 51, Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth, I tell you nay, but rather division. So he is stating something here that on the face of it may cause concern, challenge, difficulty in the mind of some when they think this seems to militate against the entire purpose of the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Prince of Peace. But, but there's no contradiction here. Really what he is stating, if you read verse 51, in one sense you just go right back to the beginning and realize that the seed of the woman shall bruise the head of the serpent and there's this, this fight, this, this battle, this warfare that exists between the seed of the woman and, and the, the, the seed of the serpent. And there's, there's this conflict between Satan and Christ and those who are Christ's people as well as those that believe and continue in the ways of the Father of lies. There is division. There is a dividing that occurs in this world. And this passage here deals with this division. And so, as I've said, I've titled my message tonight, The Dividing Christ. And there, there are some passages here, some of these verses, that aren't all that easy to untangle. But I'm going to try, and I hope that the Lord will give us help. But you have to listen, you have to pay attention, because, as I say, when we read some language and we're trying to figure out what exactly is that saying, it doesn't help us if we switch off or our mind wanders into other places. So, may the Lord give us all grace to concentrate on His Word. First of all, it's reason. It's reason. What is the reason for this dividing Christ? Look at verse 49. I am come to send fire on the earth, and what will I if it be already kindled? But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I straightened till it be accomplished? I would have liked to have divided these two verses into two separate ideas, and I think I could have, but they're so intertwined, and there's so much overlap between them as well as the challenging language that is here that I felt it better just to keep them together and look at them as a unit. Verse 49 begins, I am come. And this statement here, some point out, is tied to, often, Christ's mission. And some of the things I read, it's almost like every time you have this, that that's always the case. But 
That's not the case. However, you can think of various passages where you read language, I am calm, or language like that, where, where Christ is indicating language of His mission, what He is here to do. Think of Matthew five seventeen. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Luke 19, verse 10, the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. And John 10, 10, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. So you have that same idea here where our Lord says, I am come, and it relates to His mission. It relates to why He is here, His, his, his earthly ministry and the impact that it has. We, we've looked at various verses, and I selected some that are distinct in terms of His coming. Part of His mission is not destroying the law, but fulfilling it. Part of His mission, of course, is seeking saving that which is lost, and His mission also is that they might have life and might have it more abundantly. You, you have some distinction there, but it's all engulfed in the, the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. But what is the meaning of this text? I am come to send fire. If it's His mission, what is this mission? I am come to send fire on the earth, and what will I, if it be already kindled, and into verse 50 as well. Well, I looked up, I don't know how many different translations of this. The commentator Lenski translates these verses this way. He says, a fire came I to throw upon the earth. And there he is he's helping us understand that this is Christ, that he has come to bring this fire, to send this fire. This is his work. I am come to send or throw fire upon the earth. And how I wish it were already kindled. And a baptism have I to be baptized with, and how I am straightened until it be finished. And the way he structures it there helps you to see a certain pattern, a repetition of verse 49 and 50, where in one sense he's talking about sending a fire, and that he desires to be already kindled, and in another sense he's talking about a baptism that he is pained until it be accomplished. You see a certain pattern develop here. But when he says in verse 49, I am come to send fire on the earth, what fire? What fire? What is he referring to? And in this instance, it's, it's one of those, I, I do not have all evening to detail all the various interpretations that are given concerning this text. So I'm not going to spend time looking at it with you in terms of all the different ideas that exist, but just kind of crystallize what I think to be the meaning of the text. We have to think about fire, first of all. What Scripture says about fire, especially in relation to the Lord Himself, I am come to send fire. The Scripture is clear in relation to this relationship between fire and the Lord, whereas light is associated with God and His truth. Fire is associated with God and judgment. We are told that our God is a consuming fire. That's mentioned in Deuteronomy 4.24 and Hebrews 12.29. And so, here Jesus is saying, I am come to send fire. We immediately recognize that, that, that when the Lord is bringing fire, there's a sense of judgment that must be in view. Now, arguably, there are elements of this already taking place as Christ is ministering. However, Christ is saying it is His desire that it be kindled, that this fire be brought to fruition, if you like. He is longing for that, desiring that to be the case. And so the fire then, we, we ask, is it something to do with judgment? I would say yes. But in understanding what judgment he is referring to, I think you have to go to verse 50, where it says, but I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I straight until it be accomplished? And, and this is where I think some get mixed up. You need to see a, a pulling together of ideas. Now, the baptism most understand this to point to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Matthew chapter 20. If you go back there just for a moment, you'll see a helpful reference in relation to this. Matthew 20, verse 20. Here's where James and John's mother comes to address boldly the Lord Jesus. Matthew 20, verse 20, then came to him, the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? And she saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on the left in thy kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, 
ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of, and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They say unto him, We are able. And he saith unto them, Ye shall drink indeed of my cup, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my Father. So this baptism here, most again understand that this is it's pointing forward to the cross and the, the, the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, I believe, and most agree, is the case here in verse 50 as well. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And there's, it hasn't come to pass. It's not yet happened. This baptism is yet future. And he is pained. He's under this kind of burden of it until it comes to pass. And so I, I think we have to understand then that the fire and the baptism being pulled together are being pulled together in the gospel itself. The judgment, the judgment that is involved in the sufferings of Jesus Christ is, is, is being put in view here as our Lord makes mention of the fact that there's this fire, this sense of the judgment of God, and this baptism where it's pointing to the cross. And if you pull it together, I think Calvin has it right when he refers to the fact that this is all being pulled together in the gospel. It's all being pulled together in the gospel. And this sets the tone for the rest of the verses that speak of this division. That Christ has come, He is in the world to bring this, 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 this fire, this, this facing the judgment of God, bringing this sense of the judgment of God that will then continue by the preaching of the gospel as well as his being engulfed by the judgment of God on the cross. This becomes the reason why men then divide when we come to verse 51 and following. The reason they are divided is because of what is here mentioned, this, this burden that is upon Christ as he has come to send fire on the earth, as it were. He's come to bring the judgment of God, but it's manifested through the baptism that he experiences, namely the cross. So the cross then of our Lord Jesus Christ has this purging influence, as we shall see. But before we get to verse 51, I want to set the tone just in relation to how the Messiah brings this purging, judging, dividing influence into the world. Go to Malachi. Malachi chapter 3. The last prophecy of the Old Testament. So if you find Matthew and then just work Back from there, you'll come to Malachi. Some of this language is very familiar to you. It is a prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. Malachi 3, verse 1, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. So you're, you're, you know, there's mention here of his people will delight in him. There's a sense of, you know, optimism about that. But, but look at verse 2. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. So Christ comes and He has this purifying influence. When the Messiah arrives on the scene, He is, he is purifying. Now in that instance, it's the purification of His people, and certainly that's in view. The gospel has this purifying influence, but it has this, this separating influence. As His people are set apart, there are those who are not His people that are then cut off. As I say, Calvin says, the gospel is metaphorically compared to fire because it violently changes the face of things. The disciples, having falsely imagined that while they were at ease and asleep, the kingdom of God would come, Christ declares, on the contrary, that there must first be a dreadful conflagration to kindle the world. And it is centered on the cross. It's centered on Christ. It is Him and what he has come to do, and how men relate to that, that becomes the dividing factor in what is in view. So I am come to send fire on the earth. This judgment is going to come. 
And it's going to come at a particular time. It's going to be manifested around the cross. He will bear it himself, but it's going to be worked out, worked out into the church as well as they continue their ministry. Verse 50 says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. This is him bearing this judgment, and it becomes this, this kind of dividing factor. What think ye of Christ as you relate to him and this baptism that he experiences? So we move on then to its results. I mean, we have only two main points. It's reason and its results. And results then, we want to divide up in various ways from 51 through to the end. The fire brought upon the world by the cross of Christ, on the one hand, brings peace, doesn't it? It brings peace. There's a sense in which that fire, having been quenched by Christ on the cross, then will not touch His people in judgment. I think it's telling that on the day of Pentecost, when they're all gathered together and the Holy Spirit is sent, that there appear above them tongues like as of fire. And as I say, fire represents judgment, normally speaking, except in this instance, it, it is sitting upon them with a recognition of what? These are my people. And it may correlate to the, the pillar of fire that led the children of Israel through the wilderness. That sense of this consuming fire is before the people, but He abides without consuming them in the presence of His people, in the midst of His people. And so on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit is poured forth, it is not to judge or to condemn His people. They, they sit with the blessing of all that judgment having been taken up by Christ and poured upon Christ. They, however, enjoy God in His presence without judgment. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost. That's what continues for the people of God. They are separated. They are distinct. And so, the disciples need to grasp this. Again, remember, if you go back, where was it? Where? Verse 41, when Peter said unto him, Lord, speakest thou this parable unto us, or even to all? And the Lord continues teaching in a way where he involves his disciples in the warnings that he is giving. But this language of verse 51 becomes very telling for them, especially when they have this imagery in their head that Christ is going to come and bring perfect peace into the world. And he says, suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth, I tell you nay, but rather division. He, he, he kind of upends their expectations. He transforms what they expect is going to happen. They're awaiting him to ascend a throne in Israel and subdue all his enemies within the nation and all those that are outside of the nation, all that oppose his reign. So this division comes very close to home. So as we look at the results then of this dividing Christ, we see first a division between families in time. A division between families in time. Verse 52 for from henceforth there shall be five and one house divided, three against two, and two against three. Now, we're not told who's divided against whom. We just know there's a house of five individuals. We're told something of who these individuals are in verse 53. We have a father. This father is divided against the son, the son against the father. We have a mother who's divided from her daughter and the daughter against the mother. You have a daughter-in-law who is divided against her, her, her mother-in-law. And so you have these five individuals. And if I'm reading it right, you have a division between the parents and the married son and his wife and the unmarried daughter. Now, we don't know who's in the right. Christ doesn't reveal that. He's not saying the parents are right and the, the children and the, the, the daughter-in-law are wrong. It doesn't give us those details, but it just shows to us right close to home that in the context of, of being a Christian and submitting to Christ, we can expect division in the home. This is not pleasant, but this is reality. Christ is declaring, expect this kind of division. Now, none of us want to experience this. And we pray against it. It may be one of the things that takes up much of the burden of our hearts in our prayers. 
And sometimes we look at others that enjoy unity within the home and the family, and we, we begin to wonder, what am I doing wrong? What have I done wrong? Christ is showing here that you haven't necessarily done anything wrong. Quite the opposite. Because you did what was right, there's division in the home. What we have underscored in verse 53 is that God's love for the family, which He instituted, which He gave as a blessing, does not supersede love for Christ. We must love Christ even ahead of our own kith and kin. This is an experience that more than a few of you are familiar with. You may have come out of a family like this. Christ put His hand upon you, drew you to Himself. You went home. You went to your parents. You went to siblings. You told them, like the woman of Samaria, come see a man. Come see a man. Is this not the Christ? And you imagine that they would receive it with great joy. But they didn't. If you have gospel unity in your family, it's a remarkable blessing. Christ says it will not be the experience of all. You, you may be well aware that Christ had his own half-brothers and sisters. And that they, going by the record of the gospel, seemed for a long, long time to be on the wrong side, opposing him. So he knew what it was on a personal level to be rejected by the, your own household. Now, in reading this, it should give us no delight. There can be a strange mentality of some that, uh, kind of a, a martyr complex, that can come into the minds of some that they seem to get some kind of encouragement or strange comfort from division within the family. And if you have that tendency, and only you can judge your heart on that, if you have that tendency, I would, I would caution you strongly to a, an attitude like that. We are to find no delight in the division within our homes. You read through the book of Genesis. I've mentioned this before. People, you talk to, talk to the pastor, and often the discussion revolves around matters that relate to the family. And many of the greatest burdens of God's people would tie right into that. There, there's, there's a problem in the home. And they look across the church and it seems, they feel, they read it, like everyone seems to have these, these, these normal families. It's just me. Why has God given me an abnormal family? And I always, I always take them to Genesis, if not literally, at least in discussion. So look at the book of Genesis. It's a book about families. I mean, this is before Israel's even a nation, so all of its details are interwoven around family, not national life, family life. And from almost the minute you open the pages... One brother slays another. And it doesn't really get better from there. Note it. Do your own study. Next time you read Genesis, read Genesis with a, with a lens of what, in what way am I seeing the suffering or 
let me word it this way, in what way am I seeing the effect of the fall in the family? And you'll see it on almost every page. We are to desire unity in the family. We are to pray for unity in the family. But we are not to fight for unity in the family in such a way that we compromise the gospel. And we are to endeavor to to live our lives in such a way that show to those that may hate Christ or not believe in Christ that we have a legitimate concern for them. The division that exists within the family due to our loyalty to Christ should not encourage any disrespect for the unbelieving. I think there are some passages in the Word of God that we read and we seem to say that applies here and here and here and we don't apply it to the, to the family. For example, Romans 12, verse 17, Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. This is instruction to the people of God. And the assumption is the world doesn't get this instruction. The world doesn't know this command. They don't understand the heart of Christ. But Christ teaches His people, don't recompense evil for evil. You, you are not to treat as you are being treated. Be honest in the sight of all men, regardless of who they are. And as much as possible, whatever powers lie within you, live peaceably with all men, including family. Fight for that peace. This is the instruction given to the wives of an unbelieving husband in 1 Peter 3, where she is dealing with the challenge of her husband not knowing the Lord, not submitting to the Word. And the encouragement given to her is don't disrespect, don't, don't militate, don't cause more animosity by your response to the difficulty of what you're facing. Put a meek and quiet spirit on, adorn yourself in a way that leads to peace. What the Lord is calling His people to then is Make sure, make sure that if you suffer, you suffer for righteousness' sake. If any man suffer as a Christian, that's perfectly fine. Rejoice! Rejoice! First Peter 4. But if you suffer as an evildoer, if you're as guilty or perhaps more guilty than the unbelieving in developing or encouraging or causing strife, you can't say you're suffering for righteousness' sake. It's been well said by others that would that family would be as kind to each other as they are to strangers. But the gospel does bring division into families, here in time. That's what we see in verses 52 and 53. But there's also a division that lasts for eternity. There's not only a division between families and time, there's a division that lasts for eternity. Look at verses 54 through 59, and this is We'll look at it in two segments, but I want you to see from verse 59 that the point of Christ here is to, is to warn about those who are going to suffer because they did not seek the Lord while He may have been found and call upon Him while He is near. They didn't do that. The judgment that is referred to, the, the, the needing to pay back the very last might, is, is given to illustrate those who will not make peace with God and will stand on the judgment with God as their enemy. So in this division that lasts for eternity, 
As Christ turns his attention to an unbelieving crowd, look at verse 54, and he said also to the people, so it's like he lifts his vision a little higher, and he is now kind of looking over the heads of his disciples, as it were, and he's addressing the wider crowd and dealing with them, and look how he deals with them. (laughs) Some men, when they preach, it's more like a lecture, not with Jesus Christ. When ye see a cloud rise out of the west, straightway ye say, and he goes on with this, language. He, he, he gets into their, their minds, their hearts, and he says, you say this, ye hypocrites, verse 56, ye hypocrites. So, in this division that lasts for eternity, it is for two reasons. First, because of intellectual dishonesty. Verses 54 through 57 deal with intellectual dishonesty. That's what makes them hypocrites, verse 56. They're not being honest. Look at verse 54. He said also unto the people, When ye see a cloud rise out of the west straightway, ye say, There cometh a shower. And so it is. And when ye see the south wind blow, ye say, There will be heat. And it cometh to pass. Now, you, you, you know this. You can put yourself in Israel, and you can see that you know, to the west where the, was the sea, and so the cloud would arise, and they would say, There's a good chance of rain it's coming from, from the sea over the land. And when you feel the early winds blow from the south, they, they would know this, this, the heat's going to go up. Now, I don't know if we don't really feel it here so much, but if you've lived probably California, Arizona, Nevada, whatever, if you, if you have a south wind, you're going to have it there. And in different parts of the world, if you, depending on where you live, if there's a desert to your north or to your south or whatever, and the winds blow that direction, all that wind is being heated up. It's like being put into an oven. And by the time it gets to you, it's just like, it's like opening an oven. I remember the first time we experienced that in Australia. We were there just a couple of weeks, and it was about 9 o'clock in the morning. And here we are, we're right in the very south of Australia, in the middle, right down at the bottom. And we got a phone call around 9 o'clock from Margaret Douglas. Margaret called and she said, just just a heads up, You'll you'll not know about this, a heads up, but there's a northerly coming through today, a northern wind. And she said, keep all the windows shut, keep the doors shut, don't go outside, it'll last probably from about 10 to 4, and just don't go anywhere, don't bother, it's, it's, you can't do anything. And it came to about 10 o'clock, and Melanie decided she wanted to go for a walk. <laughs> and about 10 seconds later, she came back inside <laughs> She was like, you couldn't walk in that. That's crazy. It scorches all vegetation. Everything gets scorched. And these winds are just coming through the heart of Australia, baked in the middle of the summer. By the time they get to you, honestly, it's like opening the oven door and just the heat that hits you as soon as you walk out of the door. That's the kind of thing the Lord is dealing with here. The south, the southern deserts coming up through Israel. The people knew the wind's blowing from the south and it's summer. We're going to get... It's going to be heat, stay inside, stay out of it, make preparations, do what needs to be done in that, uh, if that's happening. And so they're aware of all this, and, and Christ confronts them. Verse 56, ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky and of the earth. How is it that you do not discern this time? How come you don't understand what is going on before your face? They had seen the fulfillment of so many messianic prophecies. They had witnessed countless miracles. The public testimony is without refutation. This man does extraordinary things. The blind receive their sight. The lame are made to walk. Lepers are cleansed. The dead are made to rise to life. And yet... Still, still you don't believe. You look and see a cloud and you say there's going to be rain. You feel the wind coming from the south. There's going to be heat. But you're seeing all this evidence on display daily. Multiple miracles daily throughout the vast majority of Christ's public ministry. The world had never seen the like They knew it. Everyone knew it. 
And here they are gathered together in their thousands, it would seem. And still they don't believe. They refuse to believe. And it's not for want of evidence. That's the point. The hypocrisy is the intellectual dishonesty. On one hand, they can say, we, we know this, therefore that. And they should be looking at Jesus Christ and his ministry and saying, we know this, therefore that. We know this, 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 this is Messiah. It has to be. It must be. If a Samaritan woman could get it within a few minutes of, of discussion and dialogue with Jesus Christ, and she said, we know Messiah cometh. I mean, she's a Samaritan. She doesn't have all the religious privileges of the Jews. But she knows that Messiah coming. There's enough truth there for that in her heart. I mean, he begins to just, just tell her about her life, know things. She immediately, immediately, it's like, it has to be. She didn't follow him around for days and weeks and months trying to poke holes in everything he did. It was evident. He, he is the Messiah. Is this not the Christ, she says? And yet these, these people, seeing all these miracles, communicating a message of confirmation in relation to who Jesus is, they refused to believe the words and the signs. Jesus as Messiah was more clear than any indication of the weather. It was more clear. And this is what made them hypocrites. They would not apply the same logic of obvious signs and the understanding of the message of those signs to what they were seeing in the life of Christ. And people do that today. There's not enough evidence. I don't believe because there's not enough evidence. All right, well, do you actually read the Bible? Have you ever really tried, like, took seriously the Word of God and endeavored honestly to look at what it says and begin to think about all the things that don't make sense if you take Jesus out of the picture? I don't want to get sidetracked tonight, but the That's the inescapable reality. You take Christ out of life. You can't make sense of life. The only way you can make sense of it is if you live in ignorance. Like, you just numb yourself to life. Who you are, why you're here, how you got here, to what end and purpose. You just have to kind of forget all of that and meander through your life fulfilling your own carnal desires. It's not honest. It's not honest. Your unbelief is unreasonable. You look at the weather and you take it seriously. Oh, look, looks like rain. My app says it's going to be rain. I'll take a raincoat. I'll take an umbrella. And you have the Word of God, and you have the evidence, and you have the testimony of changed lives, and you have the proof of the resurrection. None of which you really thought about seriously. You just, you know the signs are there, but you're not really too concerned about believing. Because honestly, you don't want evidence. You don't want there to be evidence. You don't want to, there to be beyond shadow of doubt that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the only way to God is through Him and through His sacrifice. You don't want to believe all because of what's implied by that. You, he has to be Lord, Lord of your life. He demands that you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Him. That doesn't sound too pleasant to you. You kind of want to live free. You want to make self your God, not the Son of God. So, here you are, here tonight. You can discern all sorts of things. Oh, how smart you are. How bright you are. 
how perceptive you may be, but there's a dishonesty in your heart, and it's a form of hypocrisy. You won't handle, you won't deal with, you won't pray over, you won't respond to the Word of God with the same kind of intellectual honesty as you would to something else that mattered to you. But also, there is this division that lasts for eternity, not just because of intellectual dishonesty, but because of relational stupidity. Relational stupidity. Look at verse 58. When thou goest with thine adversary, your opponent, and you have a picture of a lawsuit here, when thou goest with thine adversary to the magistrate, as thou art in the way, give diligence that thou mayest be delivered from him. The Lord, I mean, everyone, every man with any sense knows if he can settle out of court, <laughs> someone's offended, do so, do so. Don't, don't, go on, don't go to court if you can help it. Of course, there's all sorts of scriptural application. Christians are told, don't go to court. Don't, I mean, and they still do it. They, they, they don't refuse to settle matters with wisdom and humility. When thou goest with thine adversary to the magistrate, as thou art in the way, give diligence that thou mayest be delivered from him. As he heal thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and the officer cast thee into prison. I tell thee, thou shalt not depart thence till thou hast paid the very last might. The context is, you owe money. You're in debt to this person. And he's come to the point where he says, well, I'm going to take it to court because you won't pay up. And the encouragement is, Make some arrangement, the dealing with the debt or some other restructuring of the payment with the one that you owe before you end up in court. Be, be wise about this. Don't end up in court. Because the scene is of one where they end up in prison, which I have told you before wasn't really the, in the law of Moses. The, the context would be, okay, you owe this person money and you have to pay it back. If you can't pay it back, you become a slave. But at least then you have a way of continuing to work and provide and care for your dependents. In this context, it's merciless. You're put in prison. You owe a debt, but you can't get out of prison to work to pay back the debt. So the conclusion is, unless you're bailed out by someone else, you'll stay there till you die. There will be no deliverance for you. And that's the illustration that Jesus brings to their mind. This is you, only this is you before Almighty God. And the wages of sin is death. And you're carrying that. And you're bearing that. And you need to make restitution. Reconcile yourself to God through Jesus Christ before, before it comes to the judgment. Do you want to stand face to face with God at the court of His judgment? Owing Him the wages of sin. What's going to be the payment of that? Death! That's what Romans 6.23 says. Death. That's the only payment. And you will pay it for eternity. You will suffer that which is called the second death. It's horrific. It's horrific. It gives me no pleasure to preach this. But this is the warning that Christ is giving. And there may be, there may be people here in this place and you're still trifling and playing games with your soul. And you're sitting there, intellectually, you tell yourself, it hasn't been proven to me, but really, you don't want it. You're not interested in it. And if there's an inkling of desire to be reconciled to God, you have cast it into some supposed future of your life when you have had done with sowing your wild oats or living how you please now. And then, then, according to your calendar... You'll seek the Lord. The implication of verse 58 is you seek while you're in the way. In other words, it's seek the Lord while he may be found. Don't wait. Today is the day of salvation. Make restitution now. Don't hang on. Don't continue on wandering before you're going to end up at the courthouse, at the bar of God's judgment, with all sorts of regrets, wishing... Can we go back? Can we go back? Just, just, just go back. Just, just give me, give me one chance. And you will not get it. 
Forget it. Because you had all the chances. If you're in this room, you have had more opportunities than most. Settle out of court your debt before God. How? How, preacher, how do I settle that debt? Yes, you see, you've got a problem. Because you've been sinning for longer than you can remember. And you've broken every commandment more times than you can count. And if you wanted to try and make restitution by your own efforts, you wouldn't even know where to begin because you don't have a spreadsheet that would detail all that you owe. And even if you had, you could never in a million years pay it. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what we said this morning. He purged our sins. He paid the debt in full, absolutely, entirely paid the debt. And there are many in this room, and you came to a point God was as an adversary. He had much against you for your sin. But you, you reconciled through Christ. You believed. You understood that God sent not a son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You see, God making a way for restitution. There's a debt you can't pay, but Christ, the Son of God, says, I will pay it in full. You, you must believe. This was the message of Christ. The summary of his message was, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He calls men to turn from their ways and seek him. His message was one of love, of mercy. He came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you know yourself to be a sinner, you qualify for what I offer Ah, if you don't know yourself to be a sinner, (laughs) you have a step to understand before you can ever be saved. But if you know you're a sinner, if you say, yes, I'm a sinner, you qualify. I am offering a gift, the gift of eternal life to sinners. Simply believe. Receive Christ. See Him as the one offering for sin that can pay the debt you can't pay. And in response to such an act of love, you say, King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be. You give yourself to Him. Oh, you can't pay it back. But He has paid it for those who trust Him. So when thou goest with thine adversary, don't, don't continue on. If you continue and you perish, I tell thee, listen to what Jesus says, I tell thee, thou shalt not depart thence till thou hast paid the very last mite. And the point is this, in prison you have no way of paying it. And the sinner has no way of paying the debt he owes to God. It is pointing us to Christ. This whole thing is division. There's, there's, you try to straddle a fence, you'll be lost. The summary of this, really, as you come to the close of this chapter, is your first loyalty, and, and really this has been a repeated theme, but it comes into crystal view here. Your first loyalty is to Christ. It must be. No one else can deliver you. No one else can save you. No one else can redeem you. 
your first loyalty must be to Christ. And if you live under the tyranny of the fear of man, worried about what someone might think if you become a full out-and-out Christian, it may be a family member, it may be a friend, it may be the illusion of people that may not accept you to the same degree if you're an out-and-out Christian. You can't live under that fear or you will perish. C.T. Studd, that missionary, he gave up so much and went across the world, different nations, preaching Christ. He said, had I cared for the comments of people, I should never have been a missionary. Had I cared for the comments of people, I should never have been a missionary. But that's true, you know, of even becoming a Christian. Had I cared for the comments of people, I should never have become a Christian. What a tragedy to never become a Christian. To never become a Christian. There is no excuse. Christ beckons you to come. And by His authority, I beckon you to believe. Believe now. While you're in the way, may God help you. Let's bow together in prayer. It's not very difficult to become a Christian. Christ's yoke is easy and His burden is light. He makes no demands that you carry anything in order to please or satisfy God. He bears that burden fully. If you look at the law of God, you'll be crushed by it. You have broken every commandment, time without number. And when you stand before God and you're judged according to the Word, you, you will be found guilty in every conceivable way. And by then there will, will be no mercy. We will see that. We will see our Lord deal with that in Luke 16. Your opportunity, the only opportunity you know you have, is right now. So I press upon you. Turn from your sin. Turn from your unbelief. Turn from your the way you've been playing games with spiritual things. Lord, we pray, give grace to believe. May every child here turn to Christ and turn to Christ now. May every young person, may they sense the seriousness that they have no promise of tomorrow. We beg thee, thou wilt give deciding grace, as it were, and by thy Spirit draw Draw those that are struggling, those that are wrestling, draw them into the arms of Jesus, the only place where is found a full and perfect pardon. We thank Thee, those of us that are saved, that we have 
made our peace with Thee through Christ. Help us to be thankful every day. Be with us as we leave this place. Be in our conversation and fellowship. Some of us go downstairs. Be with us there, blessing the food in our conversation. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all Thy people now and evermore.